welcome back to Shadowbound, the Wraith the Oblivion podcast, hosted by myself, James Sobrano, and Victor Kinzer. Uh, and today we're going to talk about some of the basics of shadow guiding, one of the most pun intended harrowing aspects of playing a Wraith game. So let's start at the basic level. What are we talking about when we're describing the shadow? This concept doesn't really exist in other World Darkness games outside of like very mildly things like the beast, for example, and vampire and, and werewolf, but like th that's barely comparable to the shadow. So when we're talking about the shadow in Wraith, Victor, what is it that we're describing? The shadow in Wraith is the part of you that you really don't like. And that's, everyone has that part of themselves. And when you're alive, Maybe you occasionally have intrusive thoughts or you're conflicted about something or you hold yourself to a standard that you know you would never hold anyone else to. And there are all those kinds of impulses. But when you die, you get closer to oblivion. You get closer to the raw force of unmaking in existence. And that empowers that part of you, that part of you you don't want to exist. I don't know that it's ever exactly described this way, but for me, the way I thought of it is because you kind of don't want those parts of you to exist. You don't approve of those aspects of who you are. And then you're close to oblivion. They sort of come to life and fully become the, I don't want to exist. And so it's the part of you that is drawn to destruction. It's drawn to being unmade. And it's very personal, it's very different, but it's this constant voice in your head drawing you towards your, I'll put in air quotes, worst impulses. Oblivion always puts a very dark taint on it, but there's definitely a relationship there. Like if you, you can hate things about yourself that aren't bad in absolute terms, but they'll still manifest in your shadow. So it's a, it's a really interesting dynamic there, but it's pretty much always a villain unless you're really far down the path of transcendence and reconciliation and reunifying your identity and very few rates ever get to that. Yeah. Often what I'm trying to describe to new players of Wraith, what the shadow is, I use one of the Every shadow has its own kind of like aspect and personality, uh, similar to how throughout the world darkness characters have archetypes like natures and demeanors. They have their own aspect like that. Um, and one of them is the addict. And I, and I use this one as an example because I think it, it's really clear in real life how that impacts people. Like if you know an addict in your life or even just like watched any kind of media or read anything that had an, an addict character, you know, there's often this conversation about how, like, when they're trying to get their fix, they become this different person. They don't like who that person is, but also at the same time, they still want that fix. So even though they're like, oh, wow, I really don't like myself and the decisions I've made to get what I wanted there, it was still getting me something I wanted. So it's still you. It's still this, like Victor was saying, this darker aspect of your motivations, and also, like, you know, it doesn't always have to appear in such an obvious malicious way like the addict does. One of my favorite archetypes for the shadow is actually the, I think it's called the parent or the guardian, something like that. And 
the parent is like, oh, I'm just worried you're going to do this, or I'm just trying to protect you from this, or, you know, I just, you know, I love you so much. I don't want you to put yourself in harm's way. If all your friends were jumping off a bridge, would you do it too? And it seems on the surface, like that shadow is trying to protect your psyche. You're a wraith character. But in reality, it's also trying to interfere. It's trying to intervene with where your character needs to grow and what kind of goals your character is trying to reach. It's trying to stop you from doing that because it helps meet its desires, which is to shelter itself from potential harm. I've had a player who played the parent as the shadow before, and those dynamics are really interesting. There's another shadow archetype. I was just trying to find the name of it. I forget what it is, but it's the archetype that wants you to be better, but like impossibly better. And it's constantly ragging on you for not living up to your potential. And that one's really interesting to me because... There's a a YouTube channel I follow called Philosophy Tube, and the person who runs it, Abigail Thorne, did an episode on a philosophical concept called the ideal self. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. I'll watch this. What's it about? And it was not at all what I expected. The ideal self is the idea you have in your head of what you should be like. If you have like a moderate ideal self, it's kind of healthy, then it drives you to do better. It drives you to be kinder. It drives you to like get up and make a routine for yourself. It's an important part of our psyche. But for a lot of people, it goes way, way further. And it becomes, oh, your ideal self is always thinner than you can physically be or always more built than you're capable of being. Or, you know, there was a a friend I had in high school. He got back his SATs and he had like 1580 out of 1600. This is before the written portion. And he was like, I have to do it again. And he was like despondent existential crisis for days out of those like 20 points that away from 1600. And it was just all of my friends and we were all, you know, pretty academically driven. You know, one of them was already like a sophomore in college before he graduated from high school. We were all like, it's fine. Like, it's fine. You don't need this. And that drive also is very much where the shadow lives. Not everyone has that shadow, but it's a very particular form of it. And and hearing it sort of played out in this video on the ideal self, not at all about Wraith, just about people, it was kind of uncanny to listen to. That one's called the perfectionist. I actually often look at the perfectionist like goals as like the opposite of the parent, because the parent is trying to intervene and stop the psyche from getting out there and doing potentially dangerous things in order to keep it safe and protected so that nothing bad happens to it. Because in a lot of ways, the shadow doesn't want to die, right? So the shadow's like, no, 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 let's keep you safe because the shadow's a coward. But also the perfectionist is like, oh, you could have gone a few steps further there. Like, you know, everyone else pulled that much, which means that what you did doesn't look as good. So you should have really gone a few steps further than that. Like maybe you're trying to get information out of some enemy wraith who's been spying on you and everyone's been like questioning them and not getting any information. And, you know, they're like, this kind of a dead end. And, you know, your perfectionist shadow is like, well, why not torture? It's not like the monster who does the torture for, it's another archetype. The monster who like wants to do the torture to do it. But instead it's like, 
look, if you take that one extra step, you're going to get the job done and everyone's going to look at you like you're always the one getting things done right all the time. So let's go ahead and take that step. That's not that bad. Yeah. And I think the thing that's the most fun about these different archetypes is the way they play off each other in a game. I almost feel like they influence play more than the psyche or the main character's nature a lot of the times. Because when I play other World of Darkness games, or I'd say even main characters in Wraith, the nature is is there, it informs things, but I don't see my players really lean into their nature hard unless they're fishing for willpower. But the shadow guides that I've played with really camp up their archetypes. And, you know, there are various reasons why I think a more subtle approach to the shadow is a good thing, but just that impulse to want to be this thing, I think is strong with the shadow guide. I'm not totally certain why. It's just one of those things I've observed in play, but I don't think it's a bad thing. So yeah, when you get very diametrically different shadows, you get a lot of very different play that emerges at the table. You know, I think that that happens because unlike the psyche, which is the main character, the wraith character that isn't the shadow, the character you're mostly playing, you have like a far less definitions of what make your character tick than the psyche does. And so it's one of like your main like, oh, this is who I am. You know, in other games, including Wraith, but like Wraith to a lesser degree, so I want to use different examples. In Vampire, you have clan to cling to. Oh, like, I'm not sure what my character might do here, but I am this clan and I know what the themes of this clan are. That'll help me guide the direction this character goes. And you have a lot more access to roads and avenues like that with your psyche but with the shadow it's pretty limited it's almost the only defining character trait is their archetype there's some other things but that's you know you have your own dark passions and things like that which we'll talk about so you have that too but also more than anything your dark passions are a reflection of the psyche whereas your archetype doesn't need to be your archetype is an aspect of who the psyche was slash is but it's definitely a bit more separated like it's definitely like in astrology you know I- i'm not a big astrology head but i know like there's a degree of like this aspect of your sign like this planet is in this sign but that because that's the sign that you're like the the negative aspects of that sign are the things you're trying to grow out of and then this other planet is in a different part of your sign because the ideals of that sign are where you're trying what you're trying to become and so in a lot of ways you can trench that over to the shadow versus the psyche where the shadow is like aspects of who you are but you're like working to leave them behind or at least in life you did you worked to leave them behind you saw that they were negative things you tried to walk away from them while you were a living person and become something better which is you know based on your actual passions as victor was saying in the beginning once you get touched by oblivion by the ultimate and destruction of all things, the emptiness at the end of time. The negative aspects of yourself build up a life of their own. They become their own personality. They become powerful in their own right and able to influence the world outside of your will. In that way, the archetypes, I'm coming around, the archetypes are like the most defining character trait and the most unique character trait that the Shadow Guide has to play on to interact with the psyche. I really think that gets add a lot of what I've observed, that makes a lot of sense to me. Because even in Wraith, where you don't have as much of a 
clan or kith or tribe to to hang your hat on you still have some attributes like that yeah um and you're right the shadow is their archetype and uh, i think that can change over time as they become a bit more organic and the shadow guide knows more about this player they're playing against but especially early on you have this character this reflection of a character you didn't even write the archetype does become kind of your your main guidepost at the beginning i think that makes a lot of sense maybe we should talk a little bit about guiding itself at the table and what that looks like the way the shadow ends up working i'll use a three-person game as an example because it's kind of small and containable you have three people and they all have characters and then usually you have kind of a round robin like john will play sally's shadow and then sally will play trisha's shadow and then trisha will play john's shadow or if you have a larger game it can be a little bit more complicated than that and the whole process of how you go about writing those shadows and sharing intimate details of yourself with other players can be really really interesting because you need to do that how have you approached helping your players with that i've tried so many different ways the kind of primary example in the book and what most people I know have done at their tables when they played this game and those rare opportunities has been just to like, you know, the player of the wraith writes their own character and they write their shadow. And then like we kind of decide who's going to be like the best fit in that round robin, right? That you're describing and kind of pair everyone up that way. And then they kind of discuss personally with their shadow guide what their shadow is about you know and why it impacts them in the way they do and kind of what their character's psyches like weaknesses are that shadow might be like playing at to give them kind of a, a starting place however the first thing i want to say is i tried that my first time and ever since then what i've done instead usually is when it comes time to write the shadow i actually try and pick or work with the group to pick who's going to be everyone's shadow guides ahead of time and let them work on the creation of that quote unquote character together. It's still primarily in the hands of the character playing the shadow psyche. They're like the main guide, but in working on it together with the shadow guide, I feel like a lot of the times the people shadow guiding come into the game with a much better idea of where they're going and where to start than if they coordinated afterwards. Have you ever tried doing it like that? I have. The second time I ran a Wraith Chronicle, I did try to do it that way. I made the mistake of running a Chronicle that was too big. I had oh. five or six players. I will never do that again with Wraith. So I did ask people to collaborate and work on building their Wraiths. And it was, especially the backstory and the dynamics were largely in the Psyche player's control. I did have thorns and at least some dark passions be unknown. You know, I like that idea that like you look away, you don't acknowledge your own dark passions and thorns being a bit of a surprise, at least early on in the game, I thought was interesting. But what ended up happening and what was difficult is adult role-playing dynamics came in and just like disrupted everything. And it was like every game, a different person was missing. And oh. as soon as someone was missing, the Shadow God Psyche relationship just kind of fell apart. So it, it got very difficult to manage. This is the Wraith campaign where I learned all my hard lessons about Wraith, not necessarily the successful campaign, especially with Shadow Guiding Dynamics. I recommend a small party. And as hard as it can be, adults putting together a role-playing schedule, try to find a schedule you can stick to. If somebody can't make it, 
maybe skip that day. So the book has like several like alternatives, methods of shadow guiding you can use. And one of the first ones they talk about is making it so that the storyteller runs everyone's shadow. But it does acknowledge right away, and this is true, that trying to run the story, trying to play all the NPCs in the world, describe the world, you know, to keep track of everything that's going on in the background, because there's always politics and race games that you got to keep track of that. Plus trying to play everyone's shadows is really hard. I don't think it's impossible, but that's because I've run LARPs and I'm a masochist. That's just me. I do think it's worth considering the idea of mixing the two, which is you do have like assigned shadow guides, like we talked about, you know, the, the round robin style, I, I think is works really well. But also at the same time, something I've done is like, I've also sat in with the let's create the shadow sessions and figure out what it's doing. And that way, so like if, trying to think of your name examples, if Trisha doesn't show up to game that day, I can play John Shadow to help back it up so it's not just gone that day. And then ideally, you know, like if we can keep going and Trisha comes back and becomes a regular player, that's not too big a deal. It's not too much of a wait for me. If it's like any other game, like I feel like this is a rule for any game. If Trisha consistently doesn't show up, then, you know, you just need to not have Trisha be a player, unfortunately. But you would do that in any game. That's not just a Wraith thing. I like that idea. That feels much more manageable to me than the I'm running absolutely everything all the time. I've done that before. It's manageable, but it's a lot, especially because rate stories can already be very emotionally invested. It requires a lot of different planning than the other games that I've run. I can't quite improv a rate session the way I can improv a mage session or a vampire session, but I'm also not carefully tuning encounters. Like that's just not something I find myself doing when planning Wraith games. I might design a specter and very carefully pick their powers, but generally I'm doing that so they can do a lot of carefully manipulative narrative things to the players. Combat in Wraith is not the emphasis. So yeah, keeping track of all that can be kind of difficult. The thing that I find is frustrating or I want to find a better way to manage. The first Wraith campaign I ran, I did not have this problem and that's under-engaged shadows. All the shadows in that first campaign were very engaged. In the second campaign, partially because we were constantly missing people, partially because I had a couple people who were maybe not comfortable being mean to their friends. Um, <laughs> I just had very underactive shadows. And I kept finding moments where I'm like, with the stimulus going on, the shadow should really do something here. And trying to balance, do I ever step in as the storyteller and like prod the shadow or the shadow guide or speak for them? And I prefer not to do that. Yeah, have you ever run into those dynamics and found a good way to sort of bring a shadow guide out of their shell? I try to give a little bit of experience incentive to well-done shadows. You know, the right way to do that is to let them spend it on their shadows, thorns and stuff like that. But I've done it where they could use it for their actual wraith too, just because I've, I was trying to figure out what was the best way to get this person interested in working a little harder. But I want to say that said, I've kind of gotten to the point in my gaming tables where if I am having to cajole you in that kind of way, sorry to be like elitist here, but I usually don't invite you to my table in the first place. I just, I know I've gotten a feel for like, you know, Wraith is 
we've talked about this plenty already. Like Wraith is a hard, high concept game, which requires a lot of emotional intelligence, a lot of, you know, consideration and thoughtfulness in a way that like any standard game of D&D you've ever been in has never even come close to asking from you. Vampire and werewolf mage and stuff like that should have that, but they still don't even ask for it the way Wraith does. And so when it comes to me being like, okay, I'm going to run this really challenging game that requires, you know, people interact in, in these really intensive ways. I'm not just like, you know, you know who we're, I think all of us know who I'm talking about when we say, you know, like Joe, the role player, who's like, you know, which stats are the most important ones to max out. And like, that's the extent of their role play. (laughs) Yeah, I completely agree. I do not want those people at my race table. And I generally had no problem not inviting those individuals back. When I was playing Wraith, the specific barrier that I had to get through was like, PCs don't rip on PCs code, which a lot of other games have. Like you might get into little conflicts and role play, but ultimately you don't sabotage the other players. People take that stuff personally. And in Wraith, you're gonna have to sabotage the other players. You might be doing it as their shadow. And I definitely ran into a bit of a barrier with people just kind of being uncomfortable getting into that mode. So I think that's something to consider and to set expectations on early in your Chronicles. Yeah, you know, I don't remember which episode we talked about it on, but we talked earlier about like just kind of getting people ready to play a race game and letting them know what they were getting into. And one of the things I think I mentioned then, and I would also just re-emphasize here because this is where it really comes up, is that part of the story goals, like the theme behind race is the catharsis of experiencing downfall, the catharsis of experiencing grief, the catharsis experiencing your character losing which again, isn't to say you lose all the time. It's just that like, that's also like a big part of the story in Wraith is how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the fact that the longer you're undead, the longer that you, you know, are an unliving spirit who hasn't moved on, the more corrupted you get by these dark influences in this dark world that you're constantly connected to and you're never going to get away from. And so like, kind of like setting people up early with that and like, you know, also, let me, let me put it this way too. Even when it comes to, you know, I, I, I made a disparaging remark about D&D earlier and I apologize, but not that much. But I will say like, even in my D&D games, I've always had like that, those players that kind of stood out to me because it's like, think about this. I think you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. You always have that player in your chronicle who's like, oh shit, I rolled a one big shitting grin on their face what happens to me that's a player i want in my race game (laughs) yes and i find i am often that player like oh i just rolled a triple one botch and i'm now gonna laugh uncontrollably as like horror rains down on me like i get really humorously fatalistic when i have a bad dice day i've now played in two brief v5 games and it became a running joke in the first V5 game. I could not pass a hunger check. Like, it didn't matter what oh, it was. No. If, I, if I had a rouse check, I was getting hungrier. I fed so much in that campaign. And then I was in my next campaign and we started joking about it instantly. I have not failed a rouse check yet. I'm like four <laughs> games in. And I'm like, a happy medium might be nice. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, and those things go horribly wrong. I had a couple like messy criticals and my ST was like, 
you could spend willpower to re-roll those dice and get rid of that extra 10. And I'm like, absolutely not what happens to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, see, that's what I'm like. I'm that player too. And that's what I'm talking about, though. You and I are both that player. Hence, we're here nerding out about race. So other people can nerd out about race. <laughs> like, that's who you want. Look for that player and be like, okay, earmark. That person gets invited to my race table. I've never thought about it specifically in like the shit eating grin effect, but you're right. That is absolutely the thing to look for. I attract certain players because I have a certain storytelling style in which I don't shy away from disaster happening to my players. And over the years, that's made it so that, and I, I don't mean like I'm like a gross, like vindictive, I don't let players win person that's a different story altogether but it has ended up like there's certain people who are like oh i don't need to play in a james game those games are a little bit dark and other players being like i can't wait for james to destroy my character this time like how is it gonna happen and and so like when when i get those players i'm like yeah like you're who i want to play in a race game and i haven't done that in a long time i'm kind of hoping us doing this podcast like pushes me over a this speed bump i'm stuck on and i'll run another race game soon because it's been a long time yeah, I've thought the same thing. I really want to run Wraith again. I've fought a lot, and because we live in the future, maybe it's worth talking about this dynamic in the shadow. As we've been getting up to this episode, I've thought a lot about how would you actual play Wraith? How would that work? Like logistically, mechanically. I have no idea, but it would be a really fun challenge to try and tackle. You know what? You know what? Actually, I'm going to use this as a really good segue to talk about one of the other alternative methods to shadow guiding in the book, because I actually think that this method would be really well done in an actual play, because you would never under any circumstances get confused. Oh, is that the shadow role playing right now? Or is it that player's psyche? You need to work on that when you are shadow guiding, like you should have like a different voice. Like a lot of people at my tables have whispered when the shadow's talking, but Try not to tangent that far. Another one of the alternatives is to have a, I think the book calls it your first mate. I hate that name, but um, they call it your first mate. And what it is, is you have like a sub storyteller whose sole job is shadow guiding all the players. First of all, I think that's just a great alternative try anyway, if you can get someone to coordinate with you to help run a game. But also like when doing an actual play, I think that would go so well because you could even like, if you did it like recorded too, instead of just a podcast, like I mean, video recorded, you could even have like their frame is extra dark with like thorns coming off it. So you know exactly who that is. And the only way they need to differentiate from people listening or watching is to be like, oh, I'm speaking to so-and-so's character and then go into it. And that player is always taking charge in that. And that's like a really cool method that doesn't put it all in the storyteller and also doesn't get messed up when one of the players can't show up. Yeah, I really love that. If I could find someone to do that, that would solve so many of the problems that happen. This is actually a really nice way to segue into some of the powers and things that the shadow can do, because I'm immediately thinking about a couple of the thorns. So thorns are the powers that your shadow get that they can use against you or against your party members. It just depends. And there's one particular thorn that is your shadow can talk to other specters. They can have conversations mm -hmm. and call out to specters in the area. In theory, they might even end up with, in a relationship with the, like a particular specter. They don't have kind of social background traits for the shadow, but the narrative potential is there. But that's always a little bit tricky for me to play 
because if somebody has that kind of ability, then I really want to kind of step in and use the shadow to seed plot and to seed ideas. And depending on the dynamic with whoever the shadow guide is, you know, how much do I want to like hand over and give away and collaborate because then they have even more to keep compartmentalized in their player role. Whereas if I had like a shadow storyteller, I could be, okay, here's the thing I want you to feed, but like, here's the stuff going on. Mm -hmm. If you have any cool ideas about like how to seed that without giving it away. And I like the idea. I don't want to just step in as, as the storyteller and just do that. I like the idea of that being collaborative. And I think you'd be able to really do that with the model that you just talked about. And in my experience too, like maybe not everyone has this. I really don't know. I can only speak for myself, but in my like community of geeks and nerds, there's a few people who, in my opinion, are actually really gifted, talented storytellers. They can run really good games, but also are people dealing with, you know, various mental illnesses, like anxiety is a really common one, right? Which leads them to not run games. I've had things come up where they've even like people like that have said to me like oh do you want me to just come and like play an npc for you that night because that's not going to kill my anxiety the way you know like trying to organize an entire game would but i and i would still get the kicks of being like the kind of things you get out of being a storyteller the the joy you get out of being a storyteller and i feel like if you have people like that in your community which like i do those are really good people to tap to be like hey i'm going to run this game i'm doing everything but i'd really like you to help me run this game and all you really have to do is this one role which is you know let me throw an aside here that one role is kind of torturing your players which is a thing a lot of dms and storytellers and gms really like to do so it's not that hard to convince some people to do that that is really valid the other thing is if you do storytell a lot if you're prone to the storyteller role you probably don't get to be a shadow guide. Because even if you do go the approach of, okay, the storyteller is doing the shadow guiding, you're also running the plot, you're also designing everything, you're also playing all the NPCs, the shadow is going to be an occasional voice. And that's just realistic, you know, your time management and how much energy you have to put into each aspect of things. But like, I've always wanted to shadow guide. I've never played Wraith. I've only story told Wraith. And so that doesn't put me in that position. But if someone were running Wraith and I could take on that shadow guide ST position, I would jump at that like in a second. That would be so much fun. Is this going to turn into you and I doing an actual play in exactly those positions? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that wouldn't be the worst thing ever, right? <laughs> Oh, no, I thought I was just signing off for the podcast. <laughs> They're podcast episodes, right? <laughs> I mean, sure, I guess we could, we could use them that way. For anyone listening, no immediate promises, but maybe at some point when we have more time on our hands. We're only going to spend so much time talking about how much you want to run slash play Wraith games and before we finally give up, we're like, okay, we're doing this. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Speaking of thorns, you know, I don't think we'll have time to dive deep on all the different nitty-gritty powers but do you have any like favorite thorns thorns you've used narratively or seen oh, used yes. really well you know the one you mentioned is actually one of my favorites for the reason you mentioned as soon as you said i don't know if you saw me on the camera but i was I, like i gave a shitting grin but like i really love that one because in other world darkness games i've ran i've always kind of gotten a kick out of someone who is like i'm just gonna take a five point enemy no big deal 
And I'm like, are you kidding me? That is a big deal. And also that doesn't end up being your enemy. It ends up being the troops enemy. <laughs> so like everyone gets hit by that flaw. And you don't have to do that in Wraith because if someone just has that thorn and really is just has the ability to be like, oh, hey, you know, my Spectre buddy, I'm just going to call him over and say, will you come like, quote unquote, assist this circle of race and whatever they're doing? And all of a sudden things are going to hell. <laughs> oh, also, it, it warms my heart to hear that come assist the Wraiths angle because so many people think of Spectre's sort of the way all the art and most hardcore things in Dark Reflections are framed, where, like, they're the most horrific thing and they're going to come for you. But that, like, helpful guild member who's just going to take care of things for you and, and, and smooth everything out, who is actually a doppelganger, that is yes. my favorite specter. No, doppelgangers are, like, the worst, because, like, the worst specters are the ones that you think are your friends the whole time. Uh, and also, I... That's my favorite shadow too. Like not, not all shadows get played this way. Like the, the monster archetype, for example, is a really good example of like, if you don't do this, I'm going to destroy your life or I'm going to kill your, your living wife. Like the monster is like really straightforward and brutal, but like a lot of the other archetypes are like, I'm doing this for us. I'm doing this because we both need this. I'm doing this because it gets me what I want and it gets you what you want. And if you do it with me, I could give you my extra little boost of power that I have, i.e. thorns. And so like, you know, maybe that's the thing we should talk about in shadow guiding is like, there is room for the shadow that is like, no, I'm here to destroy you. I'm going to, as soon as I take over, I'm going to like, you know, hurt your family, turn your friends against you and, you know, burn down your house. That, that one exists and there's nothing wrong with that one existing. But most of them are, are more into being like, uh, I have my own goals and my own ideas. And sure, they're destructive to, to my psyche, but they're not just for destruction's sake. They're things that I want and I'm seeking out. Like in the case of the addict, like I'm looking for that high. I'm looking for that escape. I'm looking for a way to be able to feel like I can deal with the fact that I'm an undead spirit. And that's like a genuine goal. That's like, it's not just like, destruction for destruction's sake if you can empathize with why the shadow is trying to do what it's trying to do you know my example with the parent being like i'm trying to protect you because if the psyche gets destroyed the shadow doesn't really have a lot of places to go anyway some of them do want that destruction but like you know the parent i think is an example of one that doesn't then like it's really compelling because it's also a lot harder for the psyche to be like yeah i'm gonna resist you 100 percent of the time if it's always the monster being like if you don't do what i say i'm gonna kill your wife then you're like screw you monster i don't want to like you might build up more of a tolerance to that but if it's the perfectionist being like hey the fact that you couldn't come through on getting that information when the circle really needed you really let it didn't let just let me down it didn't just let you down it let everyone around you down and they're all disappointed in you so what you need to do and what we need to do is work together to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to like stop at some meaningless boundary next time. Next time we're going to cross that river and we are going to torture that person to get the information. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter if they're like one of the closest allies of our circle. We're not going to do this again. I cannot emphasize enough how much all of that is important. And one thing I was thinking about that gets neglected in the shadow dynamic a lot that I think could be a really great way to seed those sorts of ideas to your shadow players is to remember that all your NPCs have shadows. Mm -hmm. And it's really 
easy to forget that. And that's not even a critique. That's I have all these NPCs and I have all these players and they're playing two things. And I have all of this weird cosmological mess I'm navigating. Wraith has the hardest topography to navigate of any World of Darkness game. Everyone is like, where is the Tempest? Where is the Shadowlands really? <laughs> how do I navigate? How do I get to Stygia? Where does a byway actually go? Like that is a consistent problem, especially in early games. You're juggling all these things and then like, oh, right, all my NPCs have a second character as well. And it's just... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but if you do have a game where like the major plot thing that happens is the Anacreon that you've been working with that has been instructing you that you maybe don't trust implicitly because they're, you know, an authority of the hierarchy, but has generally been a positive NPC, maybe they have a catharsis but it's a subtle catharsis or maybe their shadow has that thorn where they can just insert four words in a sentence and the psyche doesn't notice and you're just going along and then they give things away and maybe they break down. Like they come to you and say, you're the only partner I can trust. I need you to purge my angst and you make that a role-playing experience and you learn about their frailties I think that's a really interesting way to seed some of these less played ideas about how the shadow behaves in a way your players can see. You could make that the entire focal point of a plot. The example you were just talking about, like what popped into my head was if you have this Anacreon who's like, I don't know, this, this elderly lady who passed away in, for old age and is genuinely just really nice and trying to help everyone all the time. And then all of a sudden, like, authorities are swooping into your necropolis being like, hold on, there's like been a horrible murder here. Like someone's been completely destroyed. This spirit that was like this, this wraith that was really important to society was just utterly ripped shred from shred. It doesn't exist anymore. And we're trying to find out who it is. And the plot is going towards, oh, we're going to blame this Anacreon. And maybe you might, your characters might think it's politics. And like, why would this nice person do that and like defend her? And over time, find out, yeah. Her fucking monster shadow took over and ripped someone apart that defied her. That stuff is really terrifying. That's a really good example. The other thing that I think the books do a really good job of highlighting, and I think as a storyteller, if you can find ways of highlighting are really good, is when the shadow is vulnerable. Because the hardcore monster shadow is terrifying. It's frightening, the idea of losing control. But there are a couple places in the books where, like a character in a story is getting really close to utter oblivion, truly being destroyed. I want to say there was a story near the front of the great war that dealt with this, where it's about the, the character talking with the shadow and the shadow being like at one point breaking down and saying, I don't want to cease to exist. And in the books, it's always like, Oh, your shadow wants to drive you towards oblivion. They have those impulses, but ultimately they're still part of you. I mean, they're as influenced by you as you are by them. It's rare that a shadow truly wants to just jump down the Venus stair and crawl into the hole and never come out again. That's actually very uncommon. That's more an impulse of like a old, old at the end of their line specter. Even most specters, if they wanted to do that, they could and they choose not to. And that says a lot. So those moments of vulnerability from the shadow where you relate to them are both poignant and really dangerous because relating to your shadow, unless you're ready to dive in and do the full reconciliation game, is a dangerous thing. And so I'm, I'm always interested in finding ways to highlight those sorts of dynamics. You know, we're giving out all of this really good advice about 
different directions we can take to role-playing the shadow to giving it a more full personality and a more full motivation which really those two words are key to role-playing to shadow guiding it shouldn't just be like a voice of destruction it should be like there's an end goal here this character may not be able to achieve its end goal but it's going to try and it has a reason for wanting that you know something that we should address that sometimes gets in the way of this is on its own level playing two characters your own character and someone else's shadow is more than most role-playing tables ask of you. And that's before we take into account things like people breaking character and just like talking about, you know, what's for dinner and like, are we ordering snacks or, you know, like how did your date go last night or things like that. And so we have like the first level of how do we always know when someone is role-playing their character versus role-playing Trissa's shadow versus... I've devolved into out of character talk and in trying to keep those all separate, how are we maintaining like balance and flow at the table? Because that is a lot to juggle. And it's, you know, I think you and I both know that getting a complete removal and agreement to not do any out of character talk at a table is next to impossible. Like sometimes you're really lucky for the most part, it's really hard to avoid. So how do you deal with that? How do you balance that? It's challenging to do. Uh, This goes back to something we've said in a couple episodes and earlier this episode, Wraith is really easier with a smaller group of people. I think the more people you have, the more likely it is somebody's bored by the scene and they're going to be more drawn to that outside chatter. I've definitely noticed that as groups get larger, but even with a small group, even with an ideal Wraith group of three, maybe four people, I think it still becomes a little bit of a risk. I think what you brought up earlier about having a different voice or whispering is really helpful. I generally encourage my shadow guides and their psyches to sit next to each other because then it can be lean over when you're the shadow, talk loud enough for people to hear because we all kind of want to experience the drama of what's going on, but lean over and be very specifically talking to them or having a different voice or, you know, maybe just piping in and saying, I'm the shadow. And I think that helps. I find a lot of shadow guides do get a different tone. Even if they don't have a totally different voice, the way they talk, what they're talking about does become distinct, but you won't have that first session. I mean, that takes some time to develop. So I think those things really help a lot. Just being more willing to kind of come in and say, look, the table chatter is disrupting things. With most games, I try to be fairly lighthearted about, okay, let's get back to the game. We're there to have fun. You know, you're there to be social. There's going to be some of that. I'm a little more hardline about it with Wraith, just because there are these extra dynamics to track. But still, you don't want to be the guy, you know, waggling your finger at your friends. That's not why we get together to play. And there's some subtler ways to do that, too. I actually, what you were talking about just reminded me of how I did my very last Wraith game which was over 10 years ago. When I was setting up the shadow guides, I did what you were talking about, how everyone sat next to I had four players. So I had them sat, sat in a way where your, your shadow guide was to your left. Your left hand, your sinister hand was your shadow guide, right? That was my cool, edgy, you know, younger James thought about, about how I set that up. No one knew but me. But like when I had it set up that way, as you can imagine, if you picture that in your head, there's nowhere for me to sit there, but that was intentional. What I did was I kind of kept my copy of the book in my notes. And I was blessed in this case that one of the players was hosting the game and they had like a very large house, a very large space. Sometimes if you have smaller spaces, 
this isn't going to work, but in this ideal situation, we had like a table in the center of a big room where there's plenty of space for me to walk around. And so I spent the entire session, you know, getting my steps in, circling the circle and telling the story that way. And, and also using that as like a narrative tool to kind of like put myself in places where I could role play and communicate in ways that focus on a certain player or even specifically behind another player when I was trying to get there a little bit more worried and riled up about what was going on. It also gave me a lot more room to like do demonstrative physical body acting, which also helps draw people into the game. And so basically I was using this narrative tool, which was like my movement, my placement, my acting was bringing people more deeply into character. And when I do that really efficiently, it's less likely they will break into like, how, how was uh, Eternals? Was it good? Did you like it? I haven't seen it, but I, I've not heard a lot of great things myself, but you know, I don't know. Have you seen it, Victor? <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be seeing it this weekend. Speaking okay. of table channel, I've heard very mixed <laughs> things. I've seen people who loved it. I've seen people who hated it. My husbands were both like, "It was good. It's not a perfect movie, but yeah." It's so I have no a idea. Perfect movie, <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, like. And kind of just using that power, but also like by doing that, it cut down on the table chatter and and also really lent into the, yeah, I do just lean to my right to go whisper into someone's ear about this thing. And there is nothing interfering with that because the storyteller isn't sitting there getting in the way either. I don't have to lean across the table to do it. And, you know, there were other things I did in that game too. Like we had all the lights off and like tea lights around the edges of the room and on the table. So like we also added to the like spooky ambiance that way. But like, you know, that was that was actually one of the better games I've, I've ever had. It was short lived, but it was pretty good. I love that Wraith probably more than any other game I've ever seen has ambiance advice in the books. And I really think if you have players that are willing to invest in that, the ambiance is worth it for Wraith. I know we're, this is like way off tangent of shadow guiding. Shadow guiding is assisting this whole process. But in Wraith, in my like big old, like I've been storytelling for way too long advice is go the extra mile in setting up some ambiance, like candles and tea lights, put some like rusty looking like withered or torn up cloth on the table instead of a tablecloth, get some like old wrought iron, like candelabras or whatever. Just go the extra mile with it because if you can even just give your players the slight hint that, oh, I'm not alive. It creates so much extra immersion by them just briefly going, oh, wait, you know, this isn't a laughing matter. I'm fucking dead. And yeah, I would say like, that's important in any game, but Wraith probably more than anything I've ever played, if you can set that up, because Wraith is the only World of Darkness game that takes place 95% in a non earth place in a non like place we're used to being it's 95 percent in either the shadow the reflection the the deathly reflection of earth or just straight out in like these mystical deathly realms it is the most important game for you to convince your players you are not alive you are not on earth this isn't a normal place I would say maybe Changeling is number two on that, but even Changeling, like you're really wrestling with the idea that, oh, sometimes Earth forces its way into your fantasy world and it really takes over sometimes. And so you don't really want to remove yourself too much from that. Whereas Wraith, it's like, it's a lucky day where you've earned like a level four power where you can go experience that, right? The thing that's interesting is I, I tend to run my games almost entirely in the Shadowlands. I've never gone to Stygia. 
I have no real desire to run in Stygia because it's so wild and, and you need to be higher level to navigate there. And people just understand, oh, I'm dead and I can still see and like almost touch my lost loved ones. I think that's where the game really thrives. But even in that place, there's this distance. I think you're right. Changeling is the other game that comes close. I'm wrapped up in my chimerical reality, but core mechanic of the game is banality. Like at any given time, you have to deal with the fact that other people can see you and they do not see this world you're interacting with. And that will literally kill you over time. I mean, that's, that's core to it as opposed to Wraith where it's like, I desperately want to get back there and I can't, it creates a very different tension. And that's a tension that, the shadow plays on a lot to kind of bring it all back around to that, my favorite part of the shadow character sheet, the dark passions, because, you know, we've talked a lot in previous episodes about how you want to be able to reach back out and touch the skin lens and your loved ones, but your shadow does as well. And that's where a lot of the seduction comes in because your shadow has passions the same way you do but they're really your passions. You know, we, we talked a little bit at the beginning about how the shadow is you, but they're the passions you don't want to admit. Like they're the things you don't want to acknowledge, but you want them. That's a really interesting dynamic and your shadow trying to trick you into doing these things. If they can trick you into doing something that fulfills a dark passion and maybe, or maybe you don't know what that dark passion is, depending on, how the storyteller has arranged character sheets and whether you figured out your dark passions, then they get angst, they further their power. And that creates some really fascinating dynamics, which also lend themselves to the ambiance. I mean, I, I feel like if you're in a really dark, gloomy setting and your shadow does something and you realize, oh, I've been had and maybe it impacts your, you know, still living daughter or, you know, long lost lover or whatever that connection is, that's where I think the shadow is the most powerful. Yes. And one thing I really want to talk address about dark passions is that I've seen it come up with other people discussing Wraith sometimes, or even in game when I've talked with other people who run Wraith, where they will describe the dark passions as being the opposites of the passions, which I feel like is a really bad direction to go. There's probably a few cases here and there where you could make that argument, but honestly, they should be like a twisted version, not an opposite, but like a, you know, like to take in our important world of darkness theme, uh, we make it an edgier version. But you know what I mean? Like in the case of the daughter, in case of the long lost, not the long lost daughter, but the daughter that's still alive, your psyche's passion is, let, I'm going to start an example. Your psyche's passion is through love, I want to protect my daughter. Like I am so passionate about this person. This is like my only like living heir or it's, or even like they're just, it's, she's not, but she was the best of them. She was like so good in her life. So I want to protect her. And then when your shadow takes over, your shadow's like, what about when she wasn't good though? And let us down. We should punish her because if she's punished, she'll know not to do that again. It's still like coming from the same motivation of like, I love this person for who they were because of how good they were. But instead of like being like, let me keep them safe from the world. It's like, let me keep them safe from themselves through whatever form of horrific punishment you can think of. It could be as simple as like brute violence, but it, it, it could also be like, oh, you know, my daughter married this person who I just don't think is good for her. And, you know, maybe convinced her that she should not continue her art career. So I'm going to kill them. 
The other thing that really comes to mind in terms of dark passions, I can't help but think of all the things that I see among my friends and online as kind of the ideals we try to live up to. Don't ever slut shame, you know, don't ever judge people, accept people for who they are. And the thing about Wraith and playing the shadow is Anks and the shadow aren't a morality trait in a strict way, the way we think of that in role-playing games that have a morality trait, but they become a very unanchored, different direction sort of morality trait for that particular character, what they believe. And your ideals will be reflected through there. So it might be, you know, your daughter, you have a passion to help her succeed and keep her safe and... uh, Maybe your shadow is the perfectionist and the dark passion is keep her pure in all of the worst definitions of that term. And it does absolutely grow from this. No, she's perfect and she has to stay perfect. And I love her. And the emotion at the end of that dark passion can be love. But like, we all know what pure actually means. Like when most people use it to refer to a person, especially a younger woman and that becomes a whole like horrible toxic dynamic that it wouldn't be that hard to just nudge your psyche slightly towards. And a lot of dynamics like that are going to show up with the shadow. And I think those just left of what your passions are, like you said, I think that's a much better direction to take them in. If you have like one passion that is a diametric opposite because you like secretly don't think you can achieve that thing, I don't think that's terrible, but I don't think they should all be that. That gets very one note and kind of stale. It's not the worst thing in the world, but don't start there. Like start with like, how do I put a twist on this? And if ultimately what you come down to is honestly, like having the dark passion of hating my my own art and wanting to destroy it because I don't believe in myself. I don't think I was worthy of being lauded in life. That makes sense. But the point there is like, how does that make sense? How would that be like this dark thought in the back of your head that turns into its own living horrible monster? That's a tricky thing to navigate, but I think dark passions are where it's also, if you set them up right, it will emerge organically. And that's kind of the best and the worst feeling ever, which is what Wraith is all about. Dark passions is one of the reasons why I really liked the idea the last time I did that last game I was describing to you of having people work on designing the shadow together because getting the input from the player of the psyche on how those twists would be really effective, I think is really valuable. I should add on top of that, not only did I have them work together, but I also sat with with each of them and helped them work on it and kind of spun my own ideas and took my notes for how I could use that in my campaign, which is also important. You know, kind of what we're getting down to here at this point, I think, is a lot of the design behind Wraith requires a significant amount of collaboration, which we've talked about on previous podcasts about how like so much of writing this game requires a really collaborative mindset, a collaborative storytelling mindset. Role-playing in itself is always collaborative, but there are a lot that kind of like shift the majority of that work to one individual, often the GM, the storyteller. And there are a lot that don't really discuss it in depth in the ways that it should be discussed. And I would argue even Wraith doesn't quite, the books don't quite discuss it in the depth I would like them to. But, you know, I don't know if anyone has played a Powered by Apocalypse games, but Powered by Apocalypse, I actually think is a really good style of gaming 
to look at, to think about how can I use it at my race table? And they have like interesting social systems where every person at the table, you know, it's, it's a wide variety of games, but like the basic rule set has things where like you have powers that work with specific individuals at the table because you have different connections to them. And that built into the rules is that collaboration. And you do have that. They don't talk about it in that way, but you have that in race too. You have the shadow guiding built into the rules is collaboration. And so the more you can encourage your players and you yourself to engage in this, to just like look at that as what it is, it's collaboration, like get them together, have them work on it together, have them treat it like it's something they both built, not one of them is built, the better results you're going to have in the end for your shadow guiding and, your, and, the, and the immersion of your whole game. What you brought up at the beginning of that about the need for collaboration, which I strongly agree with, it made me think about something that I tried in a game with some success and some failure where I tried to keep the shadow sheet a secret from the psyche. And what I was trying to tap is how you ignore your own dark passions. I didn't want the player to be able to just be like, oh, I'm going to avoid fulfilling my dark passions. And I wanted Thorns to be a surprise. I didn't want the psyches to know how much angst they had so they could play it with castigate. But at the same time, it did cut off some of that collaboration. And I'm wondering what you think of the idea of maybe telling the psyche player and the shadow guide, okay, make 90% of your character sheet together. And then that once you've done that big collaboration, the shadow guide can take one extra dark passion that the psyche doesn't know about. Like some part of themselves, they don't acknowledge and it should be in the spirit of everything they've talked about. Maybe you get to pick your thorns on your own. That feels less problematic to me than having the, the psyche pick the thorns. But looking back on the experience, I, I do actually think something was lost by not having that collaboration, but I'm, I'm wondering what you think about striking the balance between those dynamics. I love that idea. I love that idea so much. I'm probably going to try it next time. Actually. I think that's a great idea. I specifically like the idea, even like, uh, I can't remember the exact, I'd have to go open up to the page number, but I don't know the exact rules, but I, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a way that you can take extra maybe freebie points when you're making your character if you give your shadow a few more thorns or something like that. Yeah, you give them, basically you give your shadow freebie points as well, I think. I don't think it's just thorn points. Yeah. But however that works, I almost want to be like, hey, I encourage you to do this as much as possible. I might even give you a little more. The book says but you don't get to know what the shadow guide picks with those points. They'll work with you to make sure they're playing your shadow, like all like do that together. But when it comes to that part of it, like take as many of these freebies as you like, I encourage you, please do. And that's the spirit of the game. I mean, the, the one thing we haven't talked about too much because it's not really a spoken dynamic in the game. It's an unspoken dynamic is the powers are dirt cheap. I think I've mentioned that in a previous episode, but they're dirt cheap because the high-level powers all feed your shadow. And there's a lot that you can get done as a shadow by just being like, you know, <laughs> you, you want to just, I'm going to help you. I, I'm willing to help you if you do this thing because I just want you to exercise your power because that's probably going to feed me. And it doesn't get called out, but I definitely think it's a dynamic. I think there are actually, there's a thorn 
where you can help your wraith learn Arkanoi faster. And I think you can even, I need to go back and look at it. I'm pretty sure it's there. Like you can pluck information from specters, like get them to give information to help you teach your wraith things. But like, there's a cost. It It's corrupted knowledge. I need to go back and look at that exactly, but we'll, we'll do a Thord specific episode. Oh, we will. Okay. We will. Okay. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's, there's definitely a dynamic there and I definitely want to be more collaborative on that front than I was last time I played when I do my next break campaign, but there's part of it. I want, I I'm still very tied to. What do you mean? Well, part of the secretiveness, part of the not totally oh, knowing oh. your shadow that I'm still tied to. But I also want to facilitate that collaboration more well, than I did last time. I think you can do that. You can meet all those collaboration levels, but still be like, but this person gets to know most of what's on this sheet. Like they're working together to build it. They're doing it in a way to honor this evil aspect of your personality that you're working on. But a lot of that still belongs to the shadow guide. Well, you know, however you want to call it belongs, but you know what I mean? Like, you don't need to know all the details here. But I think like coordinating on dark passions is really good. I don't think they need to coordinate on thorns. That's not as important to me. Like let, let them figure out how they're going to dig in and, and destroy the psyche. So we've talked a lot about the role of the shadow in your games and some of the powers. I hope that this initial foundation has been really great for everyone. And it helps you kind of think about how you play this, how you would approach it at your table and... Uh, I hope you come back next time as we dive further into the shadow. I think it's going to be a running series here for a while. So I've been Victor Kinzer and I've been here with James Samurano. And this is Shadowbound. <laughs>